Welcome to the book club where the size is just right, the books aren't too long, and you never need to host. That's our job. We bring best-selling and award-winning writers of every genre to Twin Cities metro area libraries to share their stories, discuss their work, and answer those burning questions you've always wanted to ask your favorite authors. This is a book club where we don't have to argue about what the author meant. They can tell us. The book club that doesn't require a clean house or wine and cheese. And in this book club, if you haven't read the book, it's all right. Although, we hope you'll be inspired to pick it up next time you're in the library. I'm your host, Slade Kemet, and you can consider the book club rewritten because this is Club Book. Club Book is made possible by Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund, MELSA, and Library Strategies. We would like to thank our media sponsors at Minnesota Public Radio and MinPost.com for helping us get the word out about our great guest authors. This podcast features Samantha Irby at Hennepin County Library, Brooklyn Park. Samantha Irby is a comedian and memoirist and a decidedly unique voice in contemporary African-American literature. Her fresh, honest brand of humor first came to the attention of readers through her immensely popular blog, Bitches Gotta Eat. Irby's best-selling essay collection, Meaty, in 2013, adapts and expands her most popular blog entries and adds some new ones to boot. Topics truly run the gamut from personal reflections on the author's failed relationships and on being black in America, to a ribald take on her struggles with Crohn's disease, to an ode to tacos. Cable network FX recently optioned Meaty for a half-hour comedy series. Irby's follow-up, the New York Times best-selling We Are Never Meeting in Real Life, published in 2017, continues in that tradition. 20 new side-splitting essays including The Real Housewife of Kalamazoo and I'm in Love and It's Boring, reaffirm Irby's deserved reputation as a breathtakingly honest and, best of all, eminently relatable humorist, according to the Chicago Tribune. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. Hello. I'm very surprised that there are this many people here. Um, and I'm already sweating, so <laughs> we're in this together. Uh, okay, I'm gonna read and then we're gonna talk. I like to do a little Q&A after, so be thinking of some questions because I've done this and people have been like not asking questions and it's super embarrassing <laughs> for me and I assume everyone in the room, so. <laughs> so we don't all die of shame together. I mean, you can ask me anything. Last night we talked about uh, reality TV for really like 10 real minutes, so <laughs> if you wanna talk about, about like Vanderpump Rules, it's all good. Uh, I'm gonna read something from what I call the cat book, um, and I should have marked it while I was standing over there, but I didn't. Uh, I'm gonna read a piece called A Christmas Carol, lighthearted. Uh, little lighthearted piece for all of you. My freshman year of college, I accidentally became best friends with a couple of grade A douchebags. I didn't even want to go to college, but I couldn't fix cars and I couldn't do hair and I hadn't had a baby sophomore year, so an accredited university was the next best choice. What I really wanted to do was pull a blanket over my head and listen to Pearl Jam's No Code on repeat while eating snacks and pretending to be searching for myself all day, but I couldn't find anyone willing to pay for that. The state, however, was offering me $15,000. Do you remember when college cost $15,000? $15,000 to sleep through English 102 and watch The Young and the Restless. How could I refuse? The bro was called Adam and his bra went by John. And it was my first experience with the species inside its natural habitat, a medium-sized state school with a uh, flexible GPA requirement. <laughs> I ran into them literally while getting off the elevator on the sticky hot freshman move-in day. Adam reached for my lar large cardboard box of grunge CDs and an economy-sized bottle of head and shoulders 
sorry, holding the mic and turning the page is awful, while John grabbed the small television tucked under my arm, and they marveled at my minimalist approach to dormitory life. You don't know any poor people? I asked as I struggled to keep up. The backpack stuffed with my two good pairs of jeans and a handful of t-shirts shifting uncomfortably across my spine. They were seniors, John told me over his shoulder as we pushed past the crying parents and exasperated teenagers dotting the hallway and had been roommates for all three years prior. He was inordinately proud of their novelty disco ball and fridge full of brews and promised to show me their room later. Adam, though Jewish, was from the north side of Chicago and considered himself a homie, <laughs> as was evidenced by his low-slung baggy jeans and the insertion of out-of-context Snoop Dogg lyrics into almost every conversation. <laughs> he had large, sleepy brown eyes and a slow smile and was the kind of guy who hit on black girls by demonstrating his encyclopedic knowledge of Luster's pink oil hair lotion and BET primetime programming. <laughs> John was your typical West Suburban chest-thumping meat bag with a body built for date rape and a giant shellac You could laugh. <laughs> okay, let me pause here and say that if you're not gonna laugh at the jokes, it's gonna be a long fucking night, so. Don't be uptight, Minnesota. <laughs> Come on, I'm gonna do that over again and you're gonna respond the right way. John was your typical West Suburban chest-thumping meat bag with a body built for date rape. <laughs> there we go. And a giant shellacked auburn head that remained defiantly empty, save for a handful of professional baseball statistics and whatever Greek letters you need to learn to pledge the fraternity with the most lenient academic prerequisite. <laughs> John was the kind of dude who already looked like someone's dad. You know what I mean? Like the kind of dude in mirrored shades who chews bubblegum really hard with his arms crossed over his chest. The kind of perpetually tan, leathery skinned dude who always looks like he's standing on a sideline somewhere. <laughs> The kind of asshole you were continually surprised to find without a whistle around his neck. <laughs> a gentleman who should be shouting red-faced into a Bluetooth or standing on a deck he proudly built flipping burgers on a grill he got on sale at Lowe's. <laughs> they weren't bad dudes, though John's slicked back hair and unironic gold chains sometimes made me want to punch him in the dick. <laughs> I kind of felt bad that these dinosaurs were still working on BAs and communications and eating cafeteria lunch with 18-year-olds despite their visibly graying beards. <laughs> Over time, the three of us became friends because in exchange for my discounted tuition, I had to post up at the overnight desk in the lobby of our dorm as part of my work-study package, checking IDs while trying not to fall asleep or get vomited on. <laughs> it was not glamorous work, and I was not very good at it. Mostly my job was blocking drunk dudes from entering a dorm they didn't live in and keeping the Papa John's guy company as he waited for girls in top knots and printed pajama bottoms to come down and collect their cheese-only pizzas. John and Adam loved what little nightlife DeKalb, Illinois had to offer. And after several nights of staggering in at 2 a.m., totally shithoused and with no identification, they started to recognize me on our floor and would call out, hey, Amanda, every time I walked past their open door with a bag of Doritos on my way to watch Jerry Springer in the communal lounge because I would risk the tenuous grasp I had on that job to give them a pass. I was having a hard time finding my groove. I had a handful of friends to eat dinner and go to the movies with, but I grew up with nice kids in a nice town that had a nice school with a college and career center filled to overflowing with brochures from idyllic liberal arts college campuses across the country. I was dumb enough to be hopeful that something nice would finally happen for me. The earlier part of my lackluster senior year had been filled with daydreams of escape and reinvention. My cool New York feminist Sarah Lawrence self or my crunchy, artsy Bennington self, or my sexually free Oberlin self. <laughs> I could see the sprawling lawns and smell the libraries full of old books. 
I had poured over all of the hip college guides, the, one that's, the ones that skipped all the percentages and statistics in favor of real talk about what kind of jeans to wear to class and the best local bars at which to test out your fake ID. <laughs> I wrote thoughtful, honest essays trying to explain how a person with a 1520 on the SAT was also the same person who never took physics or trig for that matter and hadn't bothered with any AP courses and had just barely held on to a 3-2 GPA because they let me take Spanish and choir for honors credit. <laughs> I went through my sweaters and boots looking for ones that might work in New England in the fall. I filled page after page with my handwritten good intentions, exchanged my saved babysitting cash for money orders to have those applications processed, then enclosed them in fat, creamy envelopes and sent them off just before the deadline to lovely sounding places like Williamstown and Northfield and Claremont. Months later, as names like Stanford and Wesleyan and Princeton bounced excitedly off the walls of the student center, I was coming home every afternoon to skinny rejection letters mixed in with my sister's subscriptions to Essence and Cooking Light. <laughs> my counselor skimmed my list of colleges over her reading glasses while I thumbed through one of the many astrology books lining her shelves. <laughs> She reassured me that there were colleges out there that would look past the C minus in Latin American history and into the core of who I really was as a sensitive, creative air sign. But she suggested <laughs> I probably should add a couple of safety schools to my list so that I definitely had somewhere to enroll come the following autumn. This is the problem with neither applying oneself nor working up to one's potential. <laughs> These moments when you are reduced to a bunch of abstract letters and numbers whose unflattering reflection cannot be charmed or joked aside. On paper, I'm an asshole. <laughs> a National Merit Scholar who barely passed chemistry and had to take three different gym classes senior year because I failed one freshman year and dropped out of the summer school makeup class three summers in a row. <laughs> I led an insurrection of my classmates and refused to read The Grapes of Wrath, for which I should have been expelled. The schools I daydreamed about going to, you know, the ones with the lawns and the sweaters, they were looking for girls who got A's and volunteered at homeless shelters after school. I got mostly B's and a lot of C's and spent my afternoons watching Ricky Lake and sleeping until dinner. <laughs> My acceptance letter from Northern Illinois University, NIU, received two weeks before graduation, basically read, our condolences. <laughs> Here's where you pick up your books. <laughs> What's my name, fool, Adam said, letting himself into my room without knocking. Because I had let that dummy cheat off my biology final, he'd offered to drive me back to Evanston for the two-week winter break where I was going to grudgingly listen to people I passive-aggressively hated, whining about how oppressive their course loads were at Harvard, and pretending I hadn't just taken a 300-level math class at Northern, in which the professor had used rhymes to teach trig. <laughs> My roommate, Kara, had already gone home for the holidays, and Adam made himself comfortable on her bed, his long legs dangling off the extra-large twin mattress as they'd done dozens of times before. We'd, oh, let me get this ready. We'd spent many nights just like this, in beds opposite each other as we shoveled Chinese food into our mouths from cardboard containers and watched trash TV, or listened to records with a bag of greasy Taco Bell. College was surprisingly lonely. It turns out I'm not very good at making friends, unless I am already trapped in an insufferable hellscape with someone who doesn't mind my cracking a few inappropriate jokes as we circle life's drain. <laughs> I kept being introduced to people who didn't know any black people, or more often than not, any black people like me, which they exclaimed while taking me in with eyes widened to the size of dinner plates, as if I'd just hopped off a spaceship with my cheesy black light posters and newfound interest in sexual experimentation. I found myself surrounded on all sides by the kind of dudes who wore shorts in the winter and blasted Tim McGraw while tucking in their polo shirts and putting on belts to go party on a Saturday night. 
And surprise, surprise, I kind of like these jagoffs. <laughs> I like watching wrestling and would never mind going in on the party sampler to eat in front of Monday Night Football. I'm not a just one of the guys kind of person. I fucking hate men. But, <laughs> but I love eating and marathon television watching. And I never met any girls in DeKalb willing to endure six hours on a busted couch with cold cheese fries and reruns of Mystery Science Theater 3000. John could eat 17 ground beef tacos in one sitting and once watched from dusk till dawn three consecutive times on a Tuesday morning before class. Swoon. Adam was convinced that the later we left, the quicker the drive home would be. So we laid in bed all morning watching corny Lifetime Christmas movies and listening to our floor mates leaving for home. I was feeling strangely conflicted, anxious to get back to gossiping in my friends' cozy bedrooms, yet apprehensive about what, if anything, I could contribute to the discussion. I hadn't gone to homecoming, and I didn't have a crush on anyone, and I couldn't remember how to get into my email. This was in 1997. <laughs> what was I going to talk about? I got the same activity books everyone else did, and the one time I ventured out to one of the vaguely interesting events, to the movie club, which turned out to be me and three other weirdos watching Pulp Fiction in an empty classroom at night with no snacks, I was disappointed and vowed to never try any new things ever again. <laughs> except for that one time John dragged me to a young Republicans meeting. Oh, and Bible club. My winter break would consist almost entirely of coffee shop gatherings, during which I'd sit silently listening to the kind of sugar-coated fables of college life that I didn't have to offer. Lush, sprawling lawns and picnic lunches on the quad and sororities chosen and pledged. I hated these get-togethers. First of all, I didn't know how to order coffee. I still don't, because it's gross and unnecessarily fussy, and I'm a grown woman who really cannot tell a cup of bad coffee from a good one, <laughs> which is why I don't drink coffee. So I'd be sitting there in the same hoodies and gym shoes I'd worn in high school, feeling like a jerk because I ordered a hot chocolate while everyone else was drinking complicated lattes, bored and mute because the most exciting thing I'd discovered in the months prior was that if I showed my student ID at McDonald's, they would take 10% off my fries. <laughs> These bitches were at Brown and Harvard and Georgetown, driving their parents' old BMWs to parties around campus, while once a week I waited two hours sometimes for the local Sycamore bus to drop me off to buy Pop-Tarts and maxi pads at Walmart. <laughs> no, I was not going to voluntarily talk about my college experience. So many expectant eyes peering at me from under so many shiny, blunt-cut bangs. <laughs> what could I tell these girls that would satisfy their curiosity? That college, at best, had been a lateral move I hadn't really wanted to make? <laughs> that I really should have learned how to sew in a weave or take apart a carburetor? Because school never really has been my thing, and there is no shame in being an hourly working person. I couldn't tell them that all I did was constantly call my friend Anna in Rhode Island and anxiously wait for her monthly care packages. That my very first ATM pin was Matt Schaefer's birthday, even though he was halfway across the country playing rugby at Dartmouth and probably didn't even remember who I was anymore. That's the kind of gross, creepy weird I am. The, <laughs> your birthday is my pin number weird. <laughs> In my mind, I poured hot chocolate down the front of the ringleader's silly Fair Isle sweater and bounced the empty paper cup off the top of her head. In real life, I told them about the used record store I hung out in, pretending to be Janine Garofalo in Reality Bites. They remained unimpressed. It was a long afternoon. Adam and I were the last ones out of the dorm. Adam hauled the luggage through the hushed, darkened hallways while John carried what was left of a Budweiser-fueled McDonald's run the week before, a crumpled bag filled with slimy old nuggets and cheeseburgers that he had reheated in the tiny communal kitchen on our floor and cleans, uh, cleaned of bits of mold. I know, can you tell where this is going? The three of us, <laughs> the three of us slipped and fell across the parking lot 
toward one of two remaining cars while sideways winds blew snow directly into our faces. While John wedged his oversized frame horizontally into the back seat, I struggled to breathe under the weight of what I can only assume were suitcases full of mesh tank tops and Cubs jerseys in the front. Adam uneasily piloted his tiny car through the blizzard and out of the student lot. I shouldn't eat old McDonald's. <laughs> An hour on the road and we were still only 10 miles outside of campus. As holiday traffic inched imperceptibly along, John snored peacefully in the back seat and I squinted at the radio dial, trying to pick up a signal from DeKalb's one decent radio station. Suddenly, I felt something strike a match in the pit of my stomach. I ignored it, continuing to search vainly for strains of that one Third Eye Blind song everybody knows by heart and hates. What I found instead was droning conservative talk radio, artificially cheerful Christmas carols, the play-by-play -play of some football game being held in the middle of a cornfield, and fuck, there it was again, except this time it was slick, boiling oil churning through my large intestine at breakneck speed. I need a bathroom, I blurted at Adam, my armpits suddenly damp. I need a bathroom right now. Adam threw up his hands, helpless inside his toy car, gestic gesticulating wildly toward the stretch of motionless cars in the icy tundra before us and, I don't know, bleeding like a teenage girl about how far the nearest exit was. I tried to distract myself from the reality that I was trapped in a metal box with two spray tan pieces of beef jerky <laughs> by returning my attention to the useless radio in front of me. An eerie calm washed over me as I felt another wave of molten lava break gently against my intestinal wall. I bolted upright. I'm going to shit in your car, I announced, <laughs> surrendering to the inevitable. John awoke with a grunt, jumping out of the back seat as Adam desperately yanked the car out of traffic and onto the shoulder. I kicked out of my reasonably priced new Walmart winter boots. John snatched my door open, threw the suitcase I was holding into a snowbank with one hand, and held the empty cheeseburger bag out to me with the other. In here, he commanded. Okay. Sure, bro. Leaning with my right side against the open car and my left wrapped around John's leg for balance, I squatted, hopeful and relieved, my eyes trained on the bead of sweat trickling slowly down Adam's temple. When I first moved into the dorm, I didn't shit for three days. The morning after moving, I got up at dawn and eased out of my room in my freshly purchased pajamas into the dimly lit corridor. I had everything the bed, bath, and beyond ad suggested a young woman headed off to college would need. A large shower caddy with multiple compartments to carry things from my room to whatever shower stall I could claw bitch's eyes out to get into so I wouldn't be late for biology 101. Bacteria-resistant flip-flops to protect me from other people's periods and a towel big enough to protect my boobs from the prying eyes of girls who had never seen their mom's grown-up veiny breasts before. <laughs> I tiptoed into the bathroom, glancing under the stalls for tiny manicured feet. When I saw none, I slipped into the closest stall and waited a few seconds before letting out the loudest, grossest fart any non-zoo animal had ever emitted <laughs> and taking the biggest shit ever. I emerged from the stall several minutes later, light as air, my butthole singing, and ran smack into a trio of girls responsibly washing their faces over the sink, eyes aghast behind the thin layer of Clinique mild cleanser they passed between them. I avoided eye contact in the mirror while washing my hands, then spent the rest of the semester sneakily shitting at 2 p.m. in the crumbling library in the center of campus. But now, I shit all over my jeans, legs, hand, and that greasy, disintegrating bag as good Christian people in Ford Tauruses 
pretended they weren't trying to figure out what was happening <laughs> on the other side of Adam's car. After the first wave, I kicked out of my jeans entirely, <laughs> held my butthole closed as tightly as I could against the cold, wet air, and started digging a toilet hole in the snow. <laughs> you are a goddamn genius, John boomed proudly next to me, swirling snowflakes getting caught in his beard. I crouched again as another forest fire raced through my guts. Under ordinary circumstances, I would be totally humiliated, demanding that these dudes turn away from the embarrassment of my thighs. But when you are shitting yourself in public, <laughs> in broad daylight, the last thing you worry about is some drunk kid from Schaumburg seeing how long your pubic hair is. <laughs> Atta girl, Coach John shouted encouragingly <laughs> over the dull roar of the howling winter wind awkwardly patting the top of my head as I was, <laughs> once again, clinging miserably to his knees while evacuating my bowels onto the side of the road. You're doing so good. <laughs> An odd surge of pride rushed through me. Adam, absolutely horrified, tossed me an NIU t-shirt he'd yanked from his gym bag. I fashioned it into a makeshift washcloth, go Huskies, and then used mittenfuls of melting snow to clean out the diarrhea that had splashed into my vagina. Come on. It's all connected. Come on. John kicked fresh snow into my shithole as Adam hyperventilated inside the car, punching buttons and twisting knobs like a man possessed as he tried valiantly to not look at my shame. <laughs> the radio finally caught a spark, that bittersweet symphony song that was everywhere in 1997, suddenly crackling out of the tinny speakers. And then the car died. <laughs> With that, we have reached the part of our podcast where we turn to our club book audience for questions and comments for Samantha Irby and her work. In this book club, we like to encourage members and authors to connect and engage and help bridge the gap between the page you read and the process it took to write it. Our first question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what writers and essayists Samantha Irby likes to read. I don't like to praise other people. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> me, me, me. Um, let's see, my favorite essayists. I'm just, I'm gonna think of things I've just read. Sachi Cole, she's really great, she's Canadian. She writes for BuzzFeed. Her book was very good. Not as good as mine, but very <laughs> good. Um, who else writes essays? You know who I really love? Kiese Lehman, do you guys know him? He has a book of, I think it's essays coming out, or maybe it's a memoir. He's also very good. He wrote, it's called Heavy. It's about like his relationship with his body. Um, again, not as good as mine, <laughs> but fine. Uh, let's see. I just read this book by Nicole Chung. It's not out yet. It's essays. It's also very good. Uh, yeah, I mean, those are, my, those are my top three. Oh, no, the best book that I have read this year is They Can't Kill Us Until They Kill Us by Hanif Abdurraqib. It's amazing. I read it, and then I read it again immediately after. I don't ever do that. It's great. Buy it, or I mean, check it out of your <laughs> local <laughs> library. Um, it's got a wolf on the cover. It's like essays about music and race, and it's like, You'll be crying over Fallout Boy, which I didn't know was a possible thing. It's amazing. He's this black dude from Ohio who's a poet who also is a music journalist, and it's incredible. So that book. And then the other books I said are fine, too. But if you're just going to get one, get that one. That's great. This question comes from an audience member asking about Irby's family and childhood life. Oh, sure. Okay. So my... Both my parents died when I was 18, not together. And it's not that tragic. They were both old when I was born. I mean, 
parent old. Like, it's weird. So, like, I always say that. My mom was, like, 40 when I was born, and I'm about to be 40. And I think, on the one hand, I'm like, I'm not old. I still know what TV shows are cool. And then, <laughs> on the other hand, I think, if I had a baby right now, no. <laughs> so, so, yeah, th my mom was 40. My dad was 50 when I was born, and they were, like, sickly people. My mom had MS. Um, which I did write about, so in between all the like poop stories, <laughs> there are some stories that'll make you cry about my parents. So they're gone, thank God, because I couldn't do this if I had parents who were gonna be like, hello, how, how could you ride by your butthole on the internet? So I killed them so that I could have a career, <laughs> which has been great for me. 20 years of freedom, I don't have to buy a Mother's Day card, it's, it's amazing. Um, <laughs> come on, guys, it's okay, it's okay. It's been 20 years, I mean, how sad can you be? It's been 20 years. So they're gone. I have three sisters who I was raised with, except they're 20, 17, and 15 years older than I am, so it was like having four fucking mothers, which is the worst <laughs> possible thing, I mean, I couldn't talk, I mean, my sister was like 25 when I was five, like you can't fight a 25 year old, so <laughs> they just like told me what to do. Um, they're, I don't write about them much because like they're, our relationship is like a little fractured. It's just weird because of the age difference, like we're close but we're not that close, but then the third one none of us speaks to because she's a monster. Um, so, this is not a good answer. I, I should have been like, we're great, everybody's great and beautiful. But no, we, like, we're like sisters, we don't get along. Um, we fight about the dumbest things, even now. Like, my oldest sister is 60, about to be 60 years old, but we still fight like we're like 13. <laughs> like, if she says anything to me, I take it the wrong way and like it blows up, so. That's them. And then I have two, I wrote in this book, I wrote an essay about how I have two brothers that I have not seen since I was a kid. And I did look for them and even in the age of the internet, I think they're just not internet people, like I can't find them. So out there is a dude who looks exactly like me. He's somewhere in Memphis and his brother and maybe one day we'll, we'll reconnect, so. That's kind of a bummer, but and it, my I mean, my birth family life is sort of terrible. I now have a new family, like I got married to a lady, and I guess we're like a family. Um, <laughs> so yeah, sort of. But you know what I mean? You think family, and you think like you know your aunts and where I don't have all of that, but I do have a lady who bosses me around and. I have to pay her taxes, so <laughs> yeah. So I do have like a new family, and I'll, I'll write about that more in the future. I've, it's just been a couple years. I'm still getting used to like having somebody move my shit around all the time, <laughs> which is basically what being married is. <laughs> Someone picking up your jacket and putting it where you don't want them to. <laughs> Another audience member asks how Irby's writing journey began. It's a very inspirational story. <laughs> there was this dude that I wanted to have sex with, <laughs> and he was dating a girl who was a writer, and he told me that, and I was like, I'm a writer. <laughs> but I didn't have anything to show him, right? So this is like in the MySpace days. And so MySpace had a blog feature. You guys are old enough. This is a library, y'all remember MySpace. So. When I do this in front of like millennials, they're like, hmm, what? But <laughs> what's that? I think my mom had that. So MySpace had a blog feature, so I just like did this little MySpace blog, just impress this dude. It worked. I dated him. It was whack. So I, it ended. And then I was like, well, I did what I was, I was supposed to do, and I stopped the blog. And then my friend Laura was like, dude, a lot of us were reading that. <laughs> But then everyone it was transitioning from MySpace to Facebook, and so I was, Facebook didn't have a blog feature, so I was like, no, really, I'm done. And she like, taught me how to go to Blogger and set up a blog. So then I just did it because like, my friends were sick of listening to me, but they enjoyed reading like, my stories. 
And so that's how it started. That's a long winding road to ending up here. Started with a young man in Evanston, Illinois, who was like too young for me. It was a whole mess. <laughs> but thanks to him, I, I started doing this. This question asker inquires if Samantha Irby has any pets and what her relationship is like with them. My wife got two kittens before, I, so we were long distance. She lives in Michigan. I mean, I guess I live there too now, but she lives, <laughs> she lives in Michigan. I was in Chicago. I'm like, before I moved there, she got these two cats, and I was like, I mean, I feel like I wanted to. I'm the cat person. I ran an animal hospital for 14 years. I'm like, let me pick the cat. So I was incredibly irritated that she had done this without me. This is only like a lesbian problem where you're like <laughs> mad that the woman pig went and picked new cats. So I was determined to hate those cats, but they're all right. So then after Helen died, I was like, you know, I'll, maybe I'll get a new cat. I thought about getting a dog, which is like a treason or something. It's <laughs> terrible. But I didn't, but we considered it. So then finally, a couple months ago, I was like, all right, I'm ready to get a new cat. And I got a kitten from the SPCA. I named her Jackie Brown after <laughs> the Quentin Tarantino movie. And she's awful. She's the worst. She's worse than Helen. She <laughs> hates me. I walk into a room, she walks out. <laughs> like, and I tried to tell her every day that like I saved her. I paid $300 <laughs> for her. I bought her all the toy. I mean, I really went crazy and she does not give a shit. So <laughs> I'm gonna spend the next like 18 years of my life with a, yet another creature who doesn't care if I live or die. So, <laughs> and I'm one of those people who's like a kid where I like desperately like just want them to love me and they can sense it and they're like, no. So currently being tormented by Jackie Brown. Yeah. I, well, so we tried to get a dog. We like did an interview with a little dog at the SBCA and the woman brought him in and was like, he's very sensitive to noise. I'm like, you can't be more high maintenance than me in my house and I'm high maintenance. I like to make noise, and so she, I mean, she was even telling us, like, you should put a mat in the sink because if you put the dishes down too hard, the dog will freak out, and I was like, well, I understand why he's up for adoption. <laughs> take us, take us into the cat room, so then, so then we, we got a cat. I mean, I hope that dog gets adopted, but come on. Could you imagine, like, somebody comes over and you're like, don't breathe too loud. <laughs> Jojo doesn't like noise. Fuck that. Not doing that ever. Our next question asker notes that Irby wrote that she wanted to buy a big truck in her book. Did she ever make that purchase? Not yet, but I did buy a very sensible Honda CRV. <laughs> I did. It was my it's my first ever car purchase. It took a million hours at the dealer. Um, I was stressed out the whole time. I mean, no matter how much money I have or don't have, when I put my card in the thing, I am dying inside waiting for it to be declined. So going to buy a big ticket item, I was like, oh no. But we, did, we got it, we got financing, which is crazy. I mean, I felt like very accomplished. So no, I don't have a big black truck, but I have a silver gunmetal CRV that's full of like, you know, bird seed and like the person is a snacking person and but she's like a healthy snacking person so we have mason jars full of like trail mix all over the car. <laughs> it's very embarrassing. So now I have to like make more money so I can get my own car so I don't have to so I don't have to share this car that she's ruined with her health snacks. This next question is if Irby has kept in touch with John and Adam. No, and I wish that I did. I ended up dropping out of school um, because it's a sham, but uh, <laughs> there's no kids in here, right? Yeah, what a waste. So, I mean, dream big, but college, uh. So no, I dropped out of school and stopped working. And this was before, like this was right before everyone 
stayed in contact on the internet all the time, so I don't know. Those aren't their real names, and so if I could remember their real names, I might <laughs> look them up. But I can't, I wrote it with their real names and sent it to the editor, and the editor was like, no, we gotta change. We gotta change these. And then I, it, I like blocked it out of my mind so I didn't accidentally say it, but if I ever think of it, I'll look them up. I'll see if they're on Facebook. Maybe we could like do a live action retelling <laughs> of that story. That was really like the worst day of my young life. But also, the be I mean, I didn't mess up his car, so <laughs> that was good, but I mean, I wish. I mean, maybe I'll find those dudes and see, let's see if they remember. <laughs> see if they remember. <laughs> yeah, how could you forget that? Oh, what a nightmare. This question comes from an audience member asking for an update on the status of Irby's TV show. FX optioned Meaty, which is my first book, the Hedgehog book, um, to make it into a TV show. A couple of years ago, uh, I'm working on it with Abby Jacobson from Broad City and Jesse Klein, who produced Amy Schumer's show and worked, wrote for SNL and all this stuff. So we uh, were in development for a couple of years. We wrote a pilot that I liked a lot. I mean, writing a TV show is weird. Writing it about yourself is even weirder. But Jesse and I wrote the script, and we worked with FX for two years. And uh, that deal is dead. So Hollywood is a joke. But <laughs> we pitched it again with a bunch of, we've been to every network you could think of off the top of your head, we pitched it again. And we are currently like figuring out a contract with a new network, I can't say where. You could probably guess if you think really hard and watch Basic Cable, <laughs> Lifetime. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, so we're in the process of, I, I have a conference call this, week to talk about things with them so hopefully we'll get to we'll get to make it somewhere else i really hope we get to make it because it is very queer and it's very i mean i feel like it will like if you like my writing then you will like the show i think it has a broad appeal but also like one of the things that's most important to me as you could tell from that story is uh i really want to get I mean, poop on TV, of course, <laughs> but generally, like, we don't get a lot of, like, people coping. So many people have so many, like, silent illnesses, you know, and it's not tragic. Lots of people are walking around mentally ill, physically ill. You would never know, and I want to get some of that representation on TV. I want to put a person who's, like, walking through life with a physical ailment on TV and have it not be, like, a tragedy or... You know, like I just want a real depiction of it on TV. So this place we're talking to is going to let us do that, I think. So, yeah, so cross your fingers or whatever you do. And uh, hopefully, hopefully they'll let us make this damn show. That would be good. An audience member asks if Irby will be watching the royal wedding. No. Look, <laughs> I mean, those things are pretty boring, right? Like, isn't it boring? I mean, okay, well, okay. I mean, I got married on the deck of our house and we made hot dogs. Like the hot dogs were on the grill next to us while we were saying the vows. So I might not be the best person, but also I think you overestimate like my intelligence. I really only watched, watch the dumbest, Things. Like, I still watch Survivor. <laughs> I watch, like, Vanderpump Rules. I still watch MTV's The Challenge. <laughs> Roy like, royal weddings, I don't, I feel, like, too dirty to watch, like, <laughs> that. Like, physically, like, physically covered in dirt. I cannot sit in front of my TV and watch it. But I will look at the pictures. I think Megan is beautiful. Harry's fine. I mean, I liked, I would watch their sex tape. But <laughs> I would, pro I would probably, I probably not. I mean, isn't it gonna come on at six in the morning or something? Okay, all right. I mean, well, now I feel bad because you didn't watch it, but 
No, I don't think I'm gonna, wa I mean, maybe I will now. Okay, yes, yeah, maybe I will. Our next question is about Irby's tattoos. What are the stories behind them? So I don't believe in having like meaningful tattoos. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like so you look at somebody's tattoo and you're like, oh, that's cool. And then they sit down and talk to you about like history. It's like, I don't give a fuck about that shit. So um, let's see. I, here, I will talk to you about, the, this is my newest one. It's a shark, which I just got on a whim. This one is a cover up of my old boyfriend's initials. <laughs> Don't be stupid when you're dating someone. Because I was like, even if we break up, I'll still want the memory of it. Turns out, didn't want the memory of it. <laughs> didn't want to keep explaining to people what it meant, so it's covered. Uh, yeah, I have a lot of, like, so I have a lot of, I'm dressed a lot, so people don't see them. But I have a lot of like death tattoos, like Grim Reapers and skulls and stuff. And like, you're really gonna see like what a low person I am. I got really into, <laughs> I'm very stupid. I got really into Sons of Anarchy. <laughs> I really did. I really did. And I was in the tattoo shop and like there was like flash on the wall and I was just like looking and I was like, man, I should get a Grim Reaper tattoo like, <laughs> like Jack Seller. And now I have three. One of them, one of them is the Grim Reaper like with a smoking pistol. And let me tell you, when I got it, the dude who was doing it kept laughing because he was like, I don't know. This doesn't really seem to fit your personality. <laughs> and I was like, he was like asking me what I did and stuff. And I was like, oh, I work with animals. And, you know, <laughs> I like, I have a blog on the internet. And he was like, I don't know. I just don't see it. But they make me feel very tough. <laughs> Even though like if you talked to me for two seconds, you'd be like, oh, not tough. But, <laughs> but at least they, they look kind of, they look kind of tough. Oh yeah, so that's, I have Ursula on my hand, which uh, Ursula's the baddest bitch ever. She's not a villain, she's a misunderstood hero. I love Ursula very much. So yes, Ursula, Ursula is very special to me. And then my knuckles say born dead, which is kind of like a nihilist thing, but you know. I told you, dumb tattoos. <laughs> Very dumb. I have, I want no one else to succeed tattooed on my chest. <laughs> Which is a line. It's a line from There Will Be Blood. When he does that like fireside speech where he's like, I don't see much in people worth liking. Like that scene, I was in the movie theater like riveted. I was like, that's me, that's me. I hate everyone. So I got that tattooed. And again, when, when the dude tattooed that, he was like, I just don't get it. And I was, like, <laughs> I was like, okay, all right, dude. As long as I get it, okay. This audience member notes that there's a picture of Barack Obama holding Irby's book. What is the story behind the photo? Yes, okay. All right, two things. One, I have a book group on Facebook called Bitches Gotta Read that is great. Join it. It's, it's really fantastic. It somehow manages to like, have 2,000 people and not like have devolved into a cesspool, which all Facebook groups end up being. It's very nice and supportive. And there's only one fight about the hate you give, which whatever, we, we smoothed it out. It's a good group. So the, the header on that page, if you follow me on Instagram, you'll see that I have a lot of pictures of celebrities holding my book, <laughs> including Barack Obama, Beyonce, Oprah, those are all photoshops <laughs> done by my friends, Walt and Gino. I'm like, so here's the thing. Like the, I, it's hard to convince people to like rebuy a book that they already had. Not that so many people have it, but I was like, you know, I'm not gonna get the kind of coverage I would normally get for a book, right? Cause it's been out already. So I was like, what can I do? And my friend Walt was like, 
he sent me a picture of Drake with <laughs> holding a copy of Meaty, and I was like, that's what I can do. <laughs> so I Googled like various celebrities that I like reading books, and then I thought of movie scenes. Like we put it in Pretty Woman, uh, we put it in The Office, like Jim is talking to Pam and he's holding a copy of Meaty. Uh, Oprah, when she pulled out the wagon of meat, we replaced it with my book, Meaty. So <laughs> it's just me and my friends being idiots. So Electric Literature just did like an interview with me about it and like, that was fun, and some dude on the Facebook article got really serious. He was like, he said I was like disrespecting Bob Ross's legacy because we did it, and like, that's like the one dude, yeah, the Happy Little Trees guy. I, I put it, uh, Happy Little Meats and put meaty on the canvas, which, which was pretty genius, I think. <laughs> I don't know about disrespectful. So some people are idiots and don't have a sense of humor, but hopefully if Barack Obama sees that, I mean, maybe that's how we can get it to him, is people are like, how's that book you read? And he's like, I didn't read that book, and then maybe he'll like go seek it, go seek it out. But yeah, it's just me and my dumb friends fucking around on. I totally felt it. You did? <laughs> you know, a lot of people, the, the first time I did Oprah, like it's one of her holding I think Tayari Jones's book, but I put my book in there instead. <laughs> so many people hit me up like, Oprah, that's incredible. You're about to get so rich. And I was like, <laughs> no, <laughs> not really. When I saw it, I thought, look at that. I already thought Barack Obama was cool. <laughs> but when I saw that book, he I is didn't not, think, I didn't think I could have cool. <laughs> I wish. No, I love that you believe, that makes me feel very happy. But no, it's fucking fake. If you know how to get it to him, let's talk about it. We'll, we'll, I'll figure it out. I mean, isn't that the sweet thing about like having a big publisher, they can get your book to people you or, ordinarily. He is putting a book out with Penguin Random House. I don't see why they can't just slide, when he comes in for a meeting, just slide him a copy. What if we toured together? <laughs> Guys, we can't even like dream like that. <laughs> First of all, no one would let me the Michelle fuck near Barack Obama <laughs> at all. No. Yeah, I, I wouldn't like hit on him or anything, but I would be like saying wild shit and they'd be like, <laughs> they'd be like no bitch, get the fuck away from the president. So. That's a, we, let's dream it, but it's not, it's not gonna, they're not gonna let me do that shit. It would be dope, but mm -mm. And the audience, like a Barack Obama audience, if I come out in front of them, is gonna be like, uh-uh, no. He has to open for you. Oh, well, I mean, you should, I mean, you should be my manager or something. You clearly, I mean, let's work on it, okay? This question is about Samantha Irby's shirt. So my shirt has a bunch of uter uteri, uteruses, uteruses on it. I got it from the internet. I don't remember where, but I'll find where and send you a link. I uh, had to, I thought I was gonna get a hysterectomy, but I ended up getting every other thing that's not a hysterectomy. <laughs> I got a hysteroscopy, which where they fill your uterus with water and like do stuff inside it. And then I got a DNC, which is where they scrape it out. And then I got a, an ablation, which is where they burn the inside of it so that it can no longer work. <laughs> and they put, I got, it, like it was my first like real surgery, like I was under general anesthesia and uh, that was great. Like you just, they do stuff to you, you don't feel anything. Um, and then to celebrate, I got this uterus shirt because uh, I had been through so much. I don't, my uterus seems okay. I had to get it fixed before I went on tour because I had a, well, it, you'll read about it eventually, but I had, a, I had a whole thing in a hotel room in Austin and was like, I can't take this thing on the road. So then they, <laughs> they scraped it out and did all this stuff to it and then to celebrate, I got a uterus shirt. But if you like message me on Instagram, I'll find it and send it to you. Okay, yeah, yeah, I'll get you, we'll, we'll get you. I want everyone to wear one. I was in Walgreens once and wearing it and this dude was like, nice shirt. 
And I started to explain what they were, and he was like, oh, I know. <laughs> and then we had a weird moment. I didn't know what to do with that. So I was like, okay. And then I, I left. He took the joy of explaining. Another audience member asks about Irby's traveling strategy and routine. First of all, let me tell you that I'm a terrible traveler. I'm so anxious all the time about normal things, but travel things, I haven't done enough traveling in life to like be good at it. And like, I had a meltdown in DC cause like, I don't know, they, I couldn't check in and it was a whole thing and I was just real stressed out. And, but like for me, a meltdown is all internal. Like I looked normal <laughs> outside and then I got up to the room and like, you know, cried for three hours. But uh, my travel strategies, you mean like just product, what I take, like products? So first, I always have uh, Imodium with me because <laughs> I cannot be like shitting on a plane. But if I do have to, I also take, have you guys ever used poopery? It's amazing. Yeah, you spray it in the toilet before you go. It smells like lemons, like you just shit out a lemon grove. It's incredible, it's incredible. So I always have that. Um, I am not a good like self-care person. I like to buy a lot of shit to put on my face. But I think people, when they say self-care, they mean like meditate. I don't do any of that, but <laughs> I do buy a lot of facial products. Uh, on the plane, I always use First Aid Beauty Ultra Repair Cream, which is the greatest. It's cheap, it's amazing. I don't even have makeup, well I have like blush and shit on, but like I don't wear foundation because that shit is good enough. It's the best, write it down. First, I should get an endorsement deal. It's incredible. Um, first Aid Beauty Ultra Repair Cream. It is the greatest. You can get it on Amazon even. It's the best. You know what I also use? Sunday Riley's face oils. Those are very expensive, but you're worth it. You're worth it. <laughs> I'm worth it. Let me tell you something. I don't believe in a guilty pleasure. I deserve everything that I want, and so do you. So, I mean, don't rob anybody to get it, but if you have a little extra money, you deserve it. And the lipstick I'm wearing today is by Stila, and it's called Beso. It's like one of those liquid, long-wearing kind of things. It's the best. I do like a red lip. Mostly this tour, I've just been so sweaty and disgusting, I don't even put anything on. So, but for you, <laughs> for, I, was like, I was like, the library will be air conditioned. <laughs> I, can, I can put these bookstores and shit, you'll just be sweating and dying. But for you guys, I was like, there's gonna be air, I'll put a little, I'll gild, I'll gild the lily a little bit. <laughs> I'll, I'll do it a little bit. The last question of the night comes from an audience member wondering what advice Samantha Irby would give to aspiring writers. My first bit of advice is have a job. <laughs> and no one ever says that, right? Like, I didn't quit my job until two years ago. I still sometimes am like, I should get a job. Um, well, one, because it just helps to go somewhere every day and see people and have things happen to you to write about. But two, like you can't write without compromising yourself if you are like depending on the work for money. Um, I wouldn't have done this if I hadn't had a job that took care of all the bills and all the other stuff. And then like writing on my lunch breaks or writing at night, writing on the weekend is how I did it. Uh, I never had made writing my focus. I still, now it's like what I'm doing and I'm still a little like weird about it. It doesn't feel like a job. Uh, and I'm like, people could get bored with me any second. Like I'll keep doing things if they keep selling. But I also like understand that, you know, maybe one day people will be like, no thanks. And then I'll go right back to working in some other animal hospital. <laughs> but I think like writing every day, I, I wrote every, I didn't like publish something every day, but I wrote every day, no matter what. I wrote more when I worked than I do now, which is terrible. Um, <laughs> but like, I would just say to write every day. I never focused on numbers. Like, I don't check my Google Analytics or whatever to see who it's reaching. And like, I would say, this is gonna sound trite, but just like, do what you're good at. 
you know, I'm not good at writing like journalism kind of things. I'm not good at that sort of stuff. I can write about my own butthole, so that's what I write <laughs> about, because that's what I can do. And so, like, it's so it's never stressed me out because I was never trying to do or be anything that uh, didn't come naturally to me. So I would say keep writing, um, submit things places if you want to get. I mean, that's the thing you have to get like your work out there in order for someone to to see it um, and like. So you can say that, look, people are interested in my thing. If you're interested in getting published, like get your work out there, perform it. I don't know what it's like here, but Chicago has a big, what we call like live lit scene or storytelling scene. And I would perform all the time. So if you can get out and read in front of people and get them interested in your stuff, but really just like write every day and don't put too much pressure on yourself to succeed. You know, like it'll just happen. You're welcome. All right. I think we're done. I'm going to sign some books if you guys want that. Thanks very much. Thank you for being here. That wraps up our Hennepin County Library Brooklyn Park event with Samantha Irby. And that will wrap up our winter-spring 2018 club book season. Make sure to check back with us in August as we announce our fall 2018 season lineup with more great authors. Podcasts of our previous discussions can be found on our website and iTunes. So if you have a minute, check them out. Over the past nine seasons, we have had some incredible writers speak about their work, their process, and their journey. Visit us online at clubbook.org for details on past and present seasons, sign up for our e-newsletter, check out our calendar, and so much more. We also have photos of previous discussions from this season and past seasons on our Clubbook Facebook page. If you're on Twitter, find us using the handle clubbookmn. And if you enjoy these free club book events and podcasts, remember to share them with your friends. They just may too. Thanks again to all those who make club book possible, including MELSA, Library Strategies, and Minnesota's Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Our sponsors include Minnesota Public Radio, MinPost, and Common Good Books, where you can purchase all the books featured in club book. Finally, a very special thank you to all the libraries hosting events this season. That's it for club book the coolest club in town. We'll see you at the library.